Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I want to thank you for being with me today to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. It is Saturday, August 15th, 2020. We've got a little under two months to go before the presidential election, and it's very clear to me this week with things that happened in the news you know, regardless of how you're getting it, whether it's from Fox News or not, that there is a lot at stake in this coming election. And I'll explain why later on in the show. But for now, I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in to the rundown of stories that happened this week. So the big story this week was the choosing of Kamala Harris as Biden's vice president. And personally, I thought it was a great choice. I actually supported Kamala Harris when the primaries first started because she sort of represented an in-between of the more moderate approach of Joe Biden and the, in my opinion, a little bit too progressive approach of people like Bernie Sanders. So I'm quite happy with the pick, but if you're watching conservative news... You certainly wouldn't think that was the case, because it seems like, from what I've seen outside of the bubble, most Democrats are perfectly happy and some even quite enthusiastic about the Kamala Harris pick. But if you're watching Fox News, you'd think that the sky is falling. You'd think that the entire Democratic institution is imploding and just infighting and terrible things are happening because... The establishment didn't want Kamala Harris to be the vice president. They wanted someone like Elizabeth Warren or someone more moderate like Susan Rice. And it's kind of funny because the media, bu- the conservative bubble can't really seem to make up their mind whether the Democrats wanted someone less progressive or more progressive. But in either case, everyone in the conservative bubble definitely agrees that Kamala Harris is the absolute wrong choice for vice president for Biden because she attacked him so harshly in the primaries. And, you know, this does have a grain of truth to it, especially in that first debate where Kamala Harris hit him really hard on his uh, lack of support for busing in the 70s and, you know, basically bragging about working with people who turned out to be white supremacists and giving that whole speech on how busing helped this little girl and that little girl was me. And it was a huge, you know, 15 minutes of fame kind of moment for her. And then she kind of fizzled out in the primary. But there is a definite legitimate criticism there that if she thought this way of him, why would she support him now? And, you know, from the other side, she completely ravaged him in that first debate, Kamala did of Biden, and he's basically chosen to look past it. How, how, can, how can you look past someone who savaged you so badly? And my response is pretty much the same as with anyone who takes a different position than they did before. People change their mind. People look past grudges and things that they didn't have in common before to get stuff done. That's politics. At least that's what politics should be. Politics is, or at least in the most pure aspect of it, the art of compromise. It's the art of saying, I know I don't like some of the things you think about, and you may not like some of the things I think about, but that's okay Because we're both after the same thing. We both want to improve the country that we live in. So, you know, let's find some common ground, work together, and get things done. And that's exactly what happened with Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Yeah, they didn't get along that great in the primaries. But people change. And Kamala Harris realized that it was more important to make sure Donald Trump doesn't get four more years or more of presidency than to hold a grudge against Joe Biden. So they talked it out. They compromised. They said, you know, we're both after the same thing. We both want Trump gone. We both want to advance a more progressive agenda. So 
let's put aside our differences and work together for the good of the country. And I really don't see what the problem is with that, except in the conservative media bubble where, as we well know by now, compromise is a weakness. If you compromise, you're doing it wrong. I've always said that the motto of the new era Republican Party should be, no compromise, no mercy. Because, you know, ever since the Tea Party kind of took over, they don't compromise. It's not in their vocabulary. And the bubble definitely reflects this with the fact that all they talked about with Kamala Harris was how unfit she was to be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee because she'd argued so much with him in the past. It's like, no, you need to find someone who's supported you 100% of the way and never compromised and things like that. Kind of like Trump. We look at Vice President Pence and all he does whenever he goes on to any sort of media outlet or has a press conference or any sort of public interaction, all he does is sing Trump's praises endlessly no matter what he did and no matter how badly the policies that he supported ended up working. It's always just Trump has done more for X than any other president in U.S. history over and over and over again. And in fact, he had that attitude on display in full view this week when he went on Hannity after Kamala Harris and Joe Biden did their joint speeches as president and VP candidates. And literally all he talked about, no matter what questions Sean Hannity asked him, Pence just kept on singing Trump's praises over and over again, regardless of the context. Most insert metric here of any president in history, most employment in U.S. history, most black people employed in American history, best economy in American history, just over and over with these hyperboles that we all know by now is such a staple of the Trump diet. And even when Hannity asked specific questions about Kamala Harris, Mike Pence just went right back to, Oh, well, the president is not concerned about any of these things because the economy is the greatest it's ever been in the history of the country. And the response to the pandemic has been better than anyone else in the entire world. And it it got kind of funny to watch because he literally just said the same things over and over and over again, regardless of context. And what this tells me isn't so much that Trump wanted Pence to sing his praises which, of course, he does. But this wasn't about that because the whole big story of the day and what Hannity and Tucker Carlson and all those people spent most of their shows on was the fact that Kamala Harris was now the VP candidate and they spent the whole program trying to sort of deconstruct her and bring her down. But when Pence came on, he never mentioned her name once and barely mentioned Biden at all. And what this tells me is that the Trump campaign, despite there being so many signs that she was going to be the pick, and despite all the time that they had to prepare sort of an attack on her, they didn't know how to respond. They don't know how to attack her, because she's not a super heavy progressive like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, so they can't attack that. And like Biden, she's a nice person with... A pretty solid track record in the Senate, so they can't attack her personally either. And that's not to say there aren't things about her record that could be exploited. There absolutely are. For example, the Democrats, of all people, have been sort of, at least a lot of the people on the far left who wanted Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to be the VP, have attacked the fact that when she was the state attorney general of California, more often than not, she sided with the police in cases of excessive use of force or racial discrimination like she generally sided with the police and favored more strict policing and more funding so obviously the defund the police movement isn't too thrilled about her being the vp and you know that's a legitimate concern and there was also the case that she never as state attorney general prosecuted any catholic churches in the whole child sex scandal that went around the entire country. So those are two like very legitimate things that people can complain about her. But other than that, like her record as a senator is pretty good. 
I can't think of anything off the top of my head that she voted on wrong. And like I said, she's seems like a good, smart, strong person, very strong willed person. And I think that scares Trump. And again, they don't have any way of attacking that because they've never seen a woman on the ticket who sort of knew how to defend herself like Hillary. While she was, you know, a good statesman and had some of her husband's oratorial capabilities, when it came to defending attacks on herself from the other side, she didn't really do much. She sort of just let him slide. And that was part of the reason why she got beat in the 2016 election. But Kamala Harris, that ain't going to happen with her. She's a fighter. She is going to throw anything that you throw at her right back at you. And I think the Democratic ticket absolutely needed something like that. And what's kind of funny is, as I said earlier, the Republicans had all this time to sort of prepare defenses against that. And now that she's actually the candidate, they're like, uh, you know, to quote Trump in that Axios interview he did last week, they just like their brain is resetting. They don't know what to do. Like, how how can we attack this without making ourselves look bad? And that's why so far the only real attack that they've been able to muster on her is this. She shouldn't be the VP because she argued so heavily with Joe Biden in the primary debates. And almost every news outlet in the conservative bubble had some sort of version of this. So I'll just go down the list here real quick of the ones I looked at that day when the candidacy was announced. So uh, Fox, again, sort of focused on the record of her bashing him in the debates and how the Democrats didn't initially like her. And it's clear that by doing this, they're trying to project an air of disagreement and discord and that Democrats, you know, as a unit, aren't happy with the pick at all. And they're not united behind the ticket and they might go vote third party and things like that. The reality is that's not happening at all. The only place I see any sort of talk like that is on the Bernie bro subreddit and by Russian troll bots in like main political forums and things like that. So moving on to One America News Network, Trump's new favorite news organization. They didn't have any coverage about it whatsoever because pretty much all they talk about as far as politics go is Republican stuff. And they had plenty of coverage on the front page about how Trump is saying that the Democrats are meddling in the election with mail-in ballots. And don't you worry, I will be getting into that later on. So I'm going to just sort of set that aside and move on to The Federalist. And they were basically the same as Fox News, and they sort of concentrated on Harris' attacks of Biden in the primaries and how this made her a bad fit for him. Breitbart, surprisingly, was neutral on the announcement itself. Like, they didn't say it was a good thing or a bad thing. But the headline did include Trump's new nickname for her, Phony Kamala Harris. And we all know Breitbart loves to jump on those nicknames whenever Trump gets them. And Infowars, yes, I'm still looking at them, despite how absolutely crazy they are, did have an article on it, but all it mentioned was that it happened. And it uh, sort of focused more on Trump's new attack ad. So the last thing I want to mention, I want to go back to Hannity after Pence came on and talked to him and basically said nothing. After that, Hannity always likes to have a panel of other Fox hosts and conservative gurus and things like that sort of talking about whatever the main story of the day is. And so he had his panel on talking about the Kamala Harris pick. And the other guests, other than Mike Pence, called her a liar called her nasty, like a nasty woman, kind of like uh, Trump did. They said nobody likes her. And my personal favorite, they compared her to the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. <laughs> now, let me sort of explain what they meant by that. So they were talking about how Joe Biden, you know, is a tool of the radical left and he's just going to do whatever they tell him to do. And Kamala Harris, they were talking about how she's sort of the same, like she used to be more of a moderate, sort of a not-so-liberal Democrat, and now that she's got the vice presidential nominee, she's moving towards the left, just like Biden. 
And I forget which commentator it was who said that, but he said something like, she'll go whatever direction you want her to go. She'll be whatever you want her to be. She's like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in Ghostbusters, you know? You think it, and that's the position she'll take. It's absolutely insane. And frankly, it was the weirdest thing I saw this week. And if you're wondering why I'm doing that so early, I'll get to that later in the show, because I think there's something happening that's way more important than laughing at weird stuff that the conservative bubble put out. So anyway, let's move on to the next thing that happened this week, which was that Russia was the first country in the world to officially approve a COVID-19 vaccine for mass production. And this story, if you can believe it, was met with a lot of skepticism. And this is really interesting because Trump, as we all know, loves Russia, loves Putin, will side with him over his own intelligence community. And I think the reason he does that, little side note here, is because he thinks that you know, being all buddy-buddy with dictators will improve United States relations with them and we'll be able to get more of what we want. So in that respect, I sort of see where he's coming from with the logic of being so nice to all these dictators and autocrats. But the problem with that is when somebody who's smart, like Putin, notices you doing this, they're going to use it. They're going to use the knowledge that you want to please them as sort of a springboard to making you capitulate to doing things that they want you to do that'll help increase their power. Like, for example, when the U.S. pulled the troops away from the Kurds and basically left them on their own to fight the Turkish forces in ISIS, when the right thing in that instance was to leave the troops there to deter that aggression. And as we know, Turkey is backed heavily by the Russians, and they just moved right in and basically wiped out what was left of the Kurdish forces. So that gives Russia, in a proxy way, more power in the Middle East than they had before. And apparently it was Putin that convinced Trump to do that. So that's basically sort of my point, is that when you try to be too buddy-buddy with dictators and autocrats, they kind of like to turn it against you to get things they want. So anyway, when I looked up stuff about Russia getting this vaccine first, um, Fox pretty much didn't mention it the entire time I was watching them or looking at their website. I can't remember seeing a single article on it or a single story on it, which is interesting because, like I said, normally they kind of go with whatever Trump likes, and you'd think that because Trump likes Putin so much they'd run a positive story on it, and they didn't run any story at all. So I had to look to other sources to figure out what the bubble thought of this, and as it turns out, they actually sort of share the view of most of the other media outlets, which is that they're very skeptical about this vaccine working, especially because they skipped a lot of the human trials and sort of just poo-pooed a lot of the research, and... The bubble, believe it or not, actually quotes Anthony Fauci in multiple articles on multiple sites like One America and Breitbart and whatever. And they hate Fauci. We all know that the conservative media bubble despises Fauci because he's the one who told them to wear masks. He's the one who told them to stay home. He's the one who says that we should be doing stuff that impinges on our freedom. But apparently they think he's important enough to quote him on a story about the Russian vaccine, basically saying, we don't know how safe it is. We don't know how effective it is. We should take everything they say over there with a serious grain of salt, which is true. So props to the bubble for at least getting something right, even when I totally thought that they wouldn't. But I should mention that a lot of the articles, especially the ones on Breitbart and One America, emphasized very strongly that it was the Russians who got the vaccine first. And I'm not sure what the significance of that is. It could be anything from they just really like reporting on stuff that was first to something a little more conservative bubbly, like trying to emphasize to Trump that Russia was the ones that got there first and therefore we should like them. But 
You know, I'm not going to speculate. Bottom line is most of the coverage on that was fairly negative, which it should be, and skeptical, but they did emphasize that Russia got there first. So the last story that I want to get to concerns QAnon, you know, that quote-unquote fringe conspiracy theory group that basically believes that all Democrats and most of the people running the world are satanic worshipping pedophiles. But QAnon, believe it or not, not only might have a backer in Congress, it might have a bunch of backers in Congress come November, and it might even have its own caucus. And this story came out after Marjorie Green from Georgia, who is a dedicated and outspoken QAnon supporter, won her primary against another Republican challenger in a very heavily red district. So it's pretty much a given that she's going to be a congresswoman. And like I said, she is a very vocal supporter of QAnon. And Trump himself actually endorsed her and congratulated her when she won the primary. So it's very clear that QAnon is not only here to stay, it seems to be growing, especially in the age of the pandemic where everyone stays home and has to get all their news and social interaction via, you know, online message boards and forums and stuff like that, which is where QAnon originated. But the interesting thing is if you go to the media bubble, they're actually not too crazy about this whole QAnon thing because Fox, to their credit, didn't even mention this in any of their coverage that I watched this week. They didn't have anything relating to QAnon. They just had business as usual, bashing Biden, bashing Kamala Harris. And the other websites I went to, like Breitbart, for example, considered the movement very negative for mainstream conservatism. And most of the articles I saw on webs on conservative websites looked at it pretty negatively rather than you know, trying to support it or anything it says. So Breitbart did an in-depth article where they interviewed a 51-year-old woman who was holding up a big Q sign at one of Trump's rallies. And after the rally was over, she turned to the reporter and said, did you see the Q? And what she meant is that you know how Trump likes to do, I call it accordion hands, where he just moves his hands back and forth all the time and makes the uh, the perfect sign with his fingers and all that stuff. So what this woman thought is that by doing those things, Trump was sending encoded messages to Q followers. This is how mind-bogglingly insane this has gotten, folks. They literally think that Trump's regular speaking mannerisms are coded messages to QAnon supporters that the time is coming soon. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But the problem is it's becoming more and more and more widespread. Like I said, Marjorie Green is not the only QAnon supporter who's running for Congress. There's at least like 10 or 12 of them. And if enough of them win, there might be a QAnon caucus in the Congress, which would be absolutely unbelievable. Just that a long-debunked, completely backwards, insane conspiracy theory might have an actual foothold in the American government. So, going back to the bubble's coverage of this, InfoWars, surprisingly, and to their credit, I applaud them, also considers it a fringe conspiracy theory. But, you know, I, this, this was just the article that I saw on their front page. So I looked more into it, just basically went into their article search and looked at everything related to QAnon. And it's a mixed bag. Like, I'd say about 80% of the articles on InfoWars that I looked at are either pro-Q or, at the very least, anti-censorship of Q. Like, there were a lot of stories about how Twitter and Facebook took down QAnon accounts and groups because they were spreading misinformation. And InfoWars, unsurprisingly, didn't like that. So, that was about 80% of the articles I looked at. And the other 20% 
consider it a mysterious fringe group. Again, I don't think there's anything mysterious about it. It's pretty clear what their beliefs are. But it seems like the reason they don't like it isn't because of what QAnon says, but because at one point QAnon spread misinformation about Alex Jones. So it's not so much QAnon they don't like. It's the fact that they bashed the leader of InfoWars at one point. So it seems like they like what the group represents, which to them is, you know, free speech and spread of unclassified information. But they don't like the group itself because of what it did to Alex Jones. And I didn't look into exactly what they said about Alex Jones, but I would assume that it's probably something bad, something quite negative that Alex Jones didn't like. So uh, InfoWars tends to not like QAnon, but they do like what it represents. But to me, what QAnon represents is the disinformation of the conservative media bubble becoming mainstream. And I can't tell you how dangerous this is, not only for information in general, but for our country, for our democracy. Because if we have people getting voted into Congress who openly believe these absolutely baseless, insane claims that the entire world, in America especially, are being run by a secret cabal of Hollywood executives and celebrities and Democrats who are all pedophiles and all secretly worship Satan. Yeah, this is, this is the base of what they believe. If you, if you didn't know before, you know now. And there's going to be probably multiple people in Congress who believe this, and not only believe it, but probably got voted in largely because they believed it. QAnon has only grown since the pandemic started, and it continues to grow. And this is not something that's just off the top of my head. There are multiple articles out there that state that this is happening. And I really, really worry for the future of facts and information in this country, if people like this are openly getting elected, openly stating that the facts are wrong, and being rewarded for it. It just, it really makes me worried. So I'm just going to go ahead and move off of that before I get too depressed and move on to the event that I wanted to talk about this week, which was the press conference that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris held the day after she announced her candidacy as VP. So just for reference, I'm specifically talking about Fox News and their coverage of this because they were the only channel I received who was carrying the press conference. And actually, I'm, I was sort of surprised at the beginning that they were carrying it at all because I fully expected them not to because, you know, they're Fox News and... They don't want to give Democrats any more coverage than they absolutely have to. But apparently the higher-ups thought it was important enough that, yeah, they did cover it. So before she came out, they had sort of the empty stage for the first half hour or so that I watched. Before she came out, before Biden came out, all anybody on Fox talked about was her attacks on Biden during the primaries and how... Most Democrats don't like her, and they wanted Elizabeth Warren instead. And I've already been over why that's not true, but they also described the start of the press conference as a rickety rollout. And I think the reason for that was because I can't remember at this point, but I think they were a little bit late getting on stage. But that's Rich coming from a network that supports Trump, who I remember at one point was about an hour and a half late getting on stage on purpose so that he'd get more free media coverage. But anyway, moving on. So Biden and Harris, they did their speeches. I'm not going to talk about them. You can find plenty of coverage on other media outlets on what they said and what most people thought about it. I thought both of them, and especially Kamala Harris, made a really good speech and really nothing to critique that I can singularly think of. So I'm just going to go ahead and move on to the aftermath where Fox basically just spent the entire time I watched. And I watched about an hour, hour and a half after it was done 
trying to find some sort of angle for attack that they could use on Kamala Harris. Because like I said earlier, she's kind of like Joe Biden in that you can't really singularly attack anything that she's done in her political career. So what they decided to talk about instead was the fact that because she's Joe Biden's running mate and because Joe Biden is now controlled by the radical left, she basically sold out everything that she believed in as an attorney general. Because when she was an attorney general, she supported the police. And now that she's running with Joe Biden, that must mean she's against the police, hates the police, wants to defund the police. And the other thing that they said was that because Biden picked a woman of color, now the entire race is going to be about race. And I found that interesting because, as we all know, Trump, especially recently, has really been trying to play up that race card. We've seen his tweets about how he rolled back protections for low-income housing so that he could protect suburbia and... You know, you'll never have low-income housing in your suburban areas ever again, and your property values will skyrocket and all this stuff. And when he says these things, he is absolutely stoking racial fears and trying to appeal to the inner racist of everyone in the conservative bubble. And I think it was The Daily Show that just perfectly lambasted this sort of not-so-hidden racism that Trump and the Republican Party are trying to push now. It's sort of a it's a fake commercial for a get-out type horror movie, except it shows this, like, white family all happy, and it's like, they thought their property values would never go down. And then, like, there's this ominous music of, but then they move next door, and it's just this super happy, well-to-do black family all laughing and then the uh, the voiceover gives the perfect analogy for what Trump is trying to say will happen, which is find out what happens when suburban becomes urban. And as we all know, urban is sort of the new white person racist slang for blackness. Like maybe you're trying out for a part and you don't get it and you call the producer and you ask him, why didn't I get the part? I thought I auditioned great. And he's like, oh, yeah, you did. But you're just too urban. You know, translation, you're black and we don't want a black person. So that's sort of what urban is being used for now. And Trump absolutely is trying to take that sort of fear that suburban white conservative people sort of have of urbanization of their neighborhood. Black people coming into their neighborhood and turn it into a legitimate talking point. So I just wanted to shut that down immediately because I think it's despicable. I think it's disgusting that urban could basically become the new N-word. But anyway, so Fox, like I said, they were saying that it was going to be about race. And the other thing that they loved to mention was that she was a liar. And... You know, this this also could have somewhat of a racial component to it, but they straight up accused Kamala Harris of lying about one of the more emotional parts of her speech, which was her relationship with Joe Biden's son, Beau Biden, who was also an attorney general of a state and is now dead, I believe, from cancer. And they were saying that her emotional part of the story that she told about her and Biden's relationship was, and I quote, complete and utter BS. And that people will say anything to get power. And again, I just turn that right back on them. Okay, well, you're saying that Trump won't say anything to get power. We have the biggest and most beautiful economy. We have the best coronavirus response. Nobody's done more for black people than me, except maybe Lincoln. And the list goes on. This is all just, in their words, complete and utter BS that Trump is uttering during his speeches and his public appearances to raise himself up at the expense of the truth. So, again, just completely hypocritical that they'd say that about her. And 
it's pretty clear from her emotional reaction, she was tearing up. Like, she was almost in tears. She almost had to stop. That she's not lying about this. They really did have a relationship, and it actually turns out from later stories where they investigated the uh, VP vetting process that one of the main reasons that Trump picked Kamala Harris was because of her relationship with his son. So to say that both of them are lying about that, it's just, it's absolutely despicable. So anyway, then they started moving on to the panel. You know, they always have the panel of commentators and reporters and whatnot that come on after a major event and discuss what just happened. And it was all most of the same thing, just saying that Kamala Harris is a liar and it's going to be about race now and she abandoned the cops to go to the left. But the most interesting response that I saw was from Geraldo Rivera, a conservative commentator who's just been on Fox for a very long time. And Geraldo actually made more sense than anybody I've ever seen on Fox News today. Basically, what Geraldo said was that Biden is a decent person. Again, the only member of this whole panel to call him a decent person. Everyone else thinks he's just a radical, terrible puppet of the left. He said, yeah, Biden is a decent person, but he has a fragility about him. And I don't know if I'd agree with him on that point, but I mean, the man is 78 years old and we don't know what might happen to him in the next four years. This is, this is very true. And it's a very legitimate point to make. But then he went even further by saying Kamala Harris will be the 46th president, quote, probably not in four years. And I found this really sort of sickening that he would basically say Joe Biden's going to die within four years because he's so old. And yeah, we don't know that. I mean, Jimmy Carter's in, what, his late 80s now, and he's still going strong. He's still going out and building homes for Habitat for Humanity. So just because you're old doesn't mean that you're frail. Just because you're old doesn't mean that you're declining. And, I mean, Joe Biden, yeah, he's old. That is not a matter of discussion. He is an old guy. But that doesn't mean that because he's old, he's frail. That doesn't mean that because he's old, he's going to die. I mean, he looks fairly healthy to me. He was out on his bike, I think it was last week, and nobody really said anything about that on Fox. But Geraldo, moving on with what he was talking about, said that Kamala Harris, because she's probably going to be the 46th president of the United States, and Geraldo, to his credit, still thinks that Trump is going to lose the election, said that she needs to distance herself from Black Lives Matter and emphasize that she put all those pot smokers in jail because it's like, yeah, being part of the Biden ticket might win her the election this time. But when she has to run for president again in 2024, she's going to have to be more moderate. And again, I don't agree with that particular point of view, but I certainly understand where it might come from because it's true that until this year, really, you had to be a more moderate candidate in order to win the general election. And, of course, Trump changed all that, and I could probably write a thesis paper on why that's the case. But Geraldo was the only person on the panel who seemed to think that the choice of Kamala Harris was a real trouble for the Republicans. Because, like me, he said that, you know, there's really not much you can attack her on. So, you know, credit to Geraldo, I guess... Because he actually said a lot of things that were somewhat true or at least made you think in a positive manner. So good job, Geraldo Rivera. But then they moved on to Judge Janine. And she agreed with Geraldo saying that something's going to happen to Joe Biden, you know, sounding pretty sinister. Something will happen to Joe Biden and he's not going to be on the ticket. Like she seriously thought that Joe Biden will die within the next two months. Again, completely despicable. I'm not going to get into it. And she also got angry that Donald Trump is being blamed for everything bad. And this is a very, very, very common talking point that we hear in the conservative bubble. Like Trump fixed the economy. Trump stopped COVID from coming in. 
Trump doesn't support Black Lives Matter, like just completely bashing it. And she called Kamala Harris an inauthentic candidate and said, and I quote, and I'll end on this, if Genghis Khan ran, he'd look like a moderate. Yeah, sure. The guy who rampaged across Asia and Europe and built a huge empire, killed probably millions of people. Yeah, that guy would be a moderate compared to Joe Biden. Just think about how ridiculous that is. And I'll go ahead and end this segment on that. And ordinarily, at this point in the show, I would move on to the weirdest thing I saw this week. But there was something else that I saw happening this week that I consider so unbelievable, so important to our democracy, that I can't not talk about it. And I can't not dedicate at least a decent portion of my show to explaining why it's so important. So the event that I'm talking about is the fact that the Postal Service completely unannounced and actually kind of sneakily is taking away mail sorting machines from post offices all around the country and specifically in Portland and Eugene we've seen taking mailboxes away literally just pulling up on the street with a big truck ripping them out of the ground and taking them away now we need to think about why would they be doing this why would the post office during a pandemic, during an election year where they know they're going to get a massive increase in the amount of mail-in ballots, why would they be purposely hamstringing themselves to make it harder to count votes and to get all the ballots in on time? And there's only one answer, because Trump and his cronies are telling them to do it. Because Trump recently appointed a new postmaster general who's basically a lackey of his who will do anything he says. And the new Postmaster General basically told the Postal Service, we need to downsize and we need to get rid of, they call them duplicate mailboxes, but from what I understand, a lot of the mailboxes they're taking away in Portland and Eugene, they're not duplicates. They're the only ones and they're filled up to the brim each day. And in one of the articles I read, the reporter or someone he interviewed actually talked to one of the mail guys and the mail guy basically said i don't know why we're doing this i hate the fact that we're doing this but these orders to take these mailboxes away come from very high up and i have to do it or i'll lose my job and at first no one was really sure why this was happening like we all sort of had a general guess that trump had something to do with it but then later on in the week, Trump was doing a press conference and he straight up said that he was defunding the U.S. Postal Service and hamstringing it so that the Democrats wouldn't be able to get as many mail-in votes. So I want you to think about the implications of that for a second. This is straight up fraud. This is abuse of power. This is corruption in its purest form. During a pandemic, when more people are going to have to vote by mail than any other time in American history, just because they can't leave their house due to COVID-19, and Trump, knowing this and fully embracing this fact, is purposely hamstringing the mail-in ballots Specifically because he knows that it will deny more Democrats the right to vote. Because A, there's going to be more mail-in ballots coming in from the big cities which tend to lean Democratic. And B, a lot of lower income families are going to be using these mail-in ballots because it might not be convenient for them to drive to a polling place. Maybe they don't even have a car. And C, in red states... The lockdowns either aren't as severe or don't exist at all, so there's going to be more people going to the polls anyway. In person, I mean. So let's talk about the implications of this for a second. The U.S. Postal Service has already stated that 
even before the cutbacks, even before the removal of the mailboxes and the sorting machines, they were going to have a very hard time counting all the ballots in time for all of them to be counted. Just because of the massive increase that they're going to see in mail-in voting. On top of that, Trump is straight up denying them more funding that they desperately need. Again, he's already admitted it, specifically because he doesn't want the Democrats getting more mail-in votes. So, if this happens, if Trump succeeds with this, it will straight up be a robbery of the election. It will be an undermining of the American democratic process. The idea of voting is that everyone should be able to do it, who can and who is eligible to do so. And by making it harder, it disproportionately affects the Democrats because they're the ones that have sort of the inner cities who might not have a voter ID, who might not have a car to get to a polling place, who might not even have enough money to afford a stamp to send their ballot in. So this is just one step of a trending wave of authoritarian policies that I've seen infect this country in the last eight to ten years. And it's not just with what you see happening in the news with stuff like the mailboxes being pulled away. This is everywhere. This is a groundswell of new support for more centralized power, punishment of people who don't believe those in power, and more importantly, disinformation. Specifically, disinformation designed to keep you away from the real facts and to reinforce the idea that our facts are the only facts and any other facts are not facts. This is why the bubble exists, to just perpetuate these beliefs, to make it so that if you're part of this bubble, leaving is torture. And once you're in, they start showering you with these simple slogans and simple solutions to all your problems. Make America great again. How are we going to make it great? Doesn't matter. We're just going to make it great again by giving Trump all the power he needs to make it great again. And, oh, by the way, you need to question your reality because what you're seeing and what you're hearing isn't what's happening. And I really, really worry for the future of this country when roughly half of all the people in it are not only okay with this behavior, are okay living in this bubble, but they actively encourage it and bring more new people into it. So to really illustrate how far down this path America has gone and how close we really are to going so far down it we can't return, I've made a checklist. A checklist for, I believe there's four different steps of authoritarianism and you can't move on to the next step until the previous one is completed. So, I break it down into four sections. Step one, you sow the seeds of authoritarianism. Step two, minimize political opposition. Turn the other side into the enemy. Step three, you reap what you've sown. The other side actually becomes the enemy of the state, and you prosecute and silence them, declare a one-party state. And step four, once you've done that, then you can start consolidating your power getting rid of anything you might consider a threat, getting rid of any dissidents, and expanding the military. That's also very important. But I'm going to go through the checklist with you item by item, and I'll tell you how far along we are. And I want to emphasize that this checklist doesn't just apply to Trump. It doesn't just apply to America today. It applies to pretty much every dictator that I've seen who took power through legal means. So here we go. Step one, sow the seeds. First, you need to convince people that there is something fundamentally wrong with the country. It doesn't matter what that problem is. It just has to be a problem. It doesn't even have to be a real problem. Then, find a scapegoat for that problem. In our case, the scapegoat, at least to start, was immigrants. 
you know, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, and some I assume are good people. Immigrants was the scapegoat. And we all know Republicans love to find scapegoats for every problem that they see with the world. So I'll just go ahead and move on. When you find that scapegoat, you blame all the problems, even the ones that don't even apply to them, on the scapegoat. You know, when Trump first started campaigning in 2016, they basically he basically said that immigrants were the main problem with the United States, and if we just stopped letting in Mexicans and Muslims, all of our problems would go away. And that just leads right into the next check, which is convince people that the authoritarian is the only real answer to these problems. You know, and Trump, during his campaign, was saying... Mexicans are going to come in and rape your children and commit crimes and get you hooked on drugs. And Muslims are going to come in and bomb everybody to death and convert everyone to Sharia law. But the only person that can save you is Donald J. Trump. And again, that just ties right into the next check mark, which is holding big extravagant rallies, proudly displaying these beliefs and further idealizing the authoritarian figure. And in these rallies, you want to have a simple, singular, easy-to-understand message that tends to resonate with those who are frustrated with the problem that you started this whole authoritarian deal with. And in our case, it's those four telling words, Make America Great Again. And finally, the last part of step one is obviously if you're an authoritarian and trying to take power legally, you need to have some sort of direct influence in the government itself. So in order to do that, you need to have your followers get elected to enough power in the government to have significant influence on it. And in this case, this already happened actually before anything else. It was when the Tea Party got a lot of representatives elected to Congress and the Senate back in 2010. And let's be clear, the Tea Party, while it may not have seemed like it at the time, was an absolute forerunner to the authoritarian sort of mindset that we see in the Republican Party and Trump now. Because their main platform was, don't let the government tax us anymore, but we want the government to be able to tell women what to do with their bodies and just a whole other bunch of contradictions of we don't want the government interfering in our lives but we want the government interfering in your life so that was the tea party and once you've gotten some of your followers in the government that's when you can move on to step two which is minimizing the political opposition so obviously when you want to be an authoritarian and want to take power legally you're going to have to do some stuff to minimize the influence that the other side has because there's going to be opposition to you making an authoritarian state. And so the way you have to do this is by introducing the concept, and we've already seen it in the U.S. very early on in Trump's presidency, of alternative facts. Basically saying that the other side, the non-authoritarians, are pushing the narrative that the scapegoat that we invented in step one is innocent and they want to help them. Again, our facts are the right facts and their facts are not facts. And because of this, once you get these alternative facts out there, you can start demonizing the other side. Basically saying, their facts are wrong and because their facts are wrong, that makes them dangerous. And in addition to that, you start the deep state conspiracy, which, of course, QAnon is a major part of. Basically saying that the other side, the non-authoritarians, are working in the shadows and behind the scenes of the government to undermine you, the people, and to undermine everybody else taking power. And once you do these three things, you can start sort of sneakily expanding the range of the scapegoat that you invented in the first part to include members of these political parties, to include people who aren't authoritarian. And when you do this, there's a nice bonus involved because you've already convinced people that the scapegoat is an enemy of the state. 
And when you've expanded the definition of the scapegoat to include the non-authoritarians, you also color these political opponents of yours as the enemy of the state. And we've already heard Trump say multiple times that Democrats are the enemy of the state. And when you do this, you can also sort of start planting the seeds in people's minds of, oh, maybe Democrats are controlling the media too. So we have to include in that definition of the enemy of the state people like CNN and MSNBC and the Associated Press and anybody who doesn't support that authoritarian viewpoint with the alternative facts. And so we've seen this from the very beginning of Trump's presidency, saying that the media, the general media is against him and actively working to bring him down. And so he accuses the other side of political sabotage and corruption. And this is what we've seen recently with Trump saying that the Democrats are trying to sabotage the election by bringing in more mail-in voting. When, of course, it's the exact opposite. The Democrats are trying to ensure a fair and unbiased election by bringing in more mail-in voting. It's good to have more people vote because that's what makes America great is that you can vote. But if you're an authoritarian, more votes is a bad thing because you haven't fully convinced people that authoritarianism is the right thing to do yet. So... What you need to do is rather than try and convince people of that because that might not work, you need to take decisive action to weaken the influence of the other side. And the easiest way to do this is to sabotage elections. So basically, you sabotage voting somehow. You might make some sort of executive order saying that voting rights are curtailed in some way. Or you can do what the Nazis did and just straight up push people around on the streets and force them to go in and vote for your candidate. And so when you do this, if you do it effectively enough, at one point you'll win a pivotal election in which the authoritarian and or the authoritarian's party taking majority control of the government. And we sort of have this right now with the Republicans, but... Number one, not all the Republicans agree with Trump. I mean, the vast majority of them do, but not all of them do. And number two, the Democrats still control the House, which is the more powerful of the two branches of Congress. So when I say full control of the government, I mean control of the full government. And that's not to say that Trump and the Republicans couldn't make changes in the third step that I'm about to mention, but it would be a lot harder for them with a Democratic-controlled Congress. So anyway, once you have this election in which your party takes the majority power, that's when you move on to step three of the authoritarian checklist, which is reaping those seeds that you sowed back in step one. So you've already convinced a lot of people that there's something wrong with the world and to blame it on the other side. What you need now is undeniable, irrefutable proof that that is the case. And so what I've seen happen throughout history is that there's been some sort of major traumatic event, or it doesn't even have to be major, just some sort of traumatic event that can be blamed on the other side, or at least of adherence to the other side. And the most classic example of this is in Nazi Germany with the Reichstag fire. And so what we saw is nobody knows exactly who set the fire. The general consensus is that the Nazis themselves might have done it. But the point is that it gives the authoritarian and his party an excuse to start passing laws demonizing and illegalizing political opposition. Basically saying, they did this terrible thing and we need to punish them for it. And we're going to punish them by basically making it illegal to be this opposition party. They might suspend elections saying we can't hold an election when the other party is against the government. So, you know, suspend elections for the safety of the nation. And then, once you get that happening, you start seeing the real sort of solid authoritarian values come out. This is when you create some sort of centrally organized paramilitary force to enforce the safety of the country. 
This is when you silence through arrest and force any members of the other side and declare a one-party state for the good of the people. And in the midst of all this, you hold more big extravagant rallies, basically further idealizing the fact that this party is the one that's going to save you from all these scary things and developing a sort of cult of personality around the authoritarian himself. And again, we know Trump would love this. He loves to put his name on everything. He loves adorning everything in solid gold, you know, typical Trump things, which also happen to be typical authoritarian things. But during these big rallies, it's important that the authoritarian emphasizes the need to punish these scapegoats and the other side that caused this traumatic event severely so that nothing like this can ever happen again. And once you see this kind of thing starting to happen and people starting to go along with it, that's when we've historically seen some sort of law or regulation or executive order passed that turns the leader into a legitimate authoritarian, basically giving the authoritarian the power to make pretty much any decision by executive decree. And once you've done that, you are now officially the authoritarian leader. But you're not done yet. Because while you might have the legal power to do these things, there's still going to be opposition even within your own government. So this is when you move on to step four, which is consolidating your power. This is when you declare the authoritarian president for life or mein Fuhrer or other similar title. This is when you jail or execute political opposition or party members, even members of your own party who don't support you. This is when you declare executive orders, basically making all the departments run directly through the authoritarian. Again, we all know Trump would love to do this. This is when you legalize freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, making sure that nothing bad can be said about you to spread dissidents. This is when you expand your paramilitary force that you made in step three to include silencing of political opponents and dissidents. So that not only will the media not be able to run anything critical of you, if anybody says anything critical of you, they'll be gone. They'll be disappeared. You never have to worry about them. And this is also when you take the step of starting to sort of indoctrinate the children and young people into your belief system, into thinking that the authoritarian is the leader and he is the country and you must die for him and swear a personal oath of loyalty to him. And this includes the army. And with this comes a need to show an expansion of military force, whether at home or abroad or both. And the point of this is to further scare away any opposition that might rise up to your authoritarian government. And with this step done, with your military force basically forcing everyone to go along with your policies, this is when you have arrived at the end point of being the leader of an authoritarian state. So that's the end of the checklist, and I hope you were able to follow along with the whole thing. I know it was kind of long. I apologize. But it's very important that you keep it in mind because at the beginning, I told you that I would let you know how far along America is on this checklist. And I can tell you, we are done with step one of sowing the seeds, and we are almost done with step two of minimizing the political opposition. And tying this back into the original thing I was talking about, which is Trump sabotaging the postal system, with him doing this, this checks off that box, the second to last box in step two of taking actions to weaken the influence of the other party, directly sabotaging them. And that leads into the last part of step two, which is winning a pivotal election in which your party takes power. So after that, the only thing left before the actual real authoritarian stuff starts coming in is some sort of traumatic event. And I would not put it past Trump and his cronies to stage some sort of event like that to garner public support for authoritarian policies. I'm not saying it'll happen. I hope to God if he wins, it doesn't happen. But again, I wouldn't put it past him doing something like that because we know he loves to cheat in every deal he makes. And it just wouldn't surprise me if he did something like that because he's already trying to cheat in this election. So to sort of wrap things up, we are one election 
and one traumatic event away from true authoritarianism and true authoritarian policies really being able to come into effect in this country. And I just want to emphasize how important it is that everyone gets out and votes on November 3rd. This election could literally decide the future of our country, the future of our lives, the future of our children and our grandchildren. And I know it sounds cliche, but in this case, it really is true. This 2020 election could be the most significant and important one that we've had since Abraham Lincoln 160 years ago. I think it's that important because I see America going down an authoritarian path and this could be our last chance to stop it. And yeah, Joe Biden isn't perfect. I 100% agree with that. But would you rather have Joe Biden who you can compromise with, who you can deal with, who is a nice guy and a reasonable person? Would you rather have that or a wannabe dictator who might be closer than ever to actually achieving that goal? So I'm going to leave it on that and end the show with a couple of ways that you can get involved and help ensure the integrity of this election. So the one thing you can do is if you are a mail-in voter, make sure that you mail your voting ballot in before October 26th. That will ensure that it gets to the proper place on time to be counted. If you don't have a mail-in ballot, when you go to fill out your ballot, make sure that you have a paper ballot. Specifically request a hand-marked paper ballot, even if you have electronic machines. And if they force you to vote with a voting machine, bring your sample ballot with you and make sure that the options you press on the touchscreen go along with what you wrote on your sample ballot. And finally, support the Postal Service, whether that's financially, through social media, just talking to people about it. Make sure that whatever you can do to support the Postal Service, you can, because it's actively being sabotaged by this pathetic excuse of a man, Donald Trump. And if we let it happen, we don't know where that road's going to lead us. But based on the checklist that I made, I can tell you where historically it's gone. And these sorts of situations tend to end in authoritarian dictatorships. So it could not be more important for you to vote in any way you can and make sure that your vote is counted correctly. So if you made it through this entire thing, I want to thank you very much for listening. I hope that we can get through this together. I hope that we are able to have a fair and transparent election. And I hope that Joe Biden wins that election and stops this slide of authoritarianism that we seem to be on. So thank you for listening, everybody. Stay home, stay safe, wear a mask, and I'll see you all next week. Take care.